Hope that you're doing well. Happy Wreck Your Sleep Cycle Sunday, uh, or Happy Daylight Savings, rather. Uh, I've been told that this means that I get to preach an extra hour today. Yeah. I told my son I was going to bust that one out. He goes, Dad, do you think they're going to cheer for that? I said, nervous laughter more likely is what's going to happen. But turn to Genesis chapter 8 with me. We're going to pick it up virtually where we left off last week. We're going to get into chapter 9, about seven verses in today. And we're going to start, I'm going to ask you right now, if you were to tell me everything that you know about the Noahic covenant, how many of you would be able to put down anything on that piece of paper? I bet a lot of you don't have the foggiest notion where to begin with the Noahic Covenant. Well, it is my hope that before you leave here today that you will know something more about this covenant. Not just to know it, but you should understand what this is, and it's the subject matter of our text today, and you need to know something about it because you are a beneficiary of this. You benefit, you enjoy many of the results and the components of this thing called the the Noahic Covenant. Let me tell you a couple of things that you benefit from because of this covenant. You benefit in the following way. The earth will never again be destroyed by flood. Okay, that's that's a good thing. We enjoy that. That's a component of this covenant. Another benefit is, because of this covenant, you can go to a steakhouse anytime you want. All right? Now, some of you are like, that's not a blessing for me. I'm a vegan. Well, that's not God's fault. That's on you, all right? But we're not just going to talk about the obscure details of this covenant. There's something bigger at play here. And just to set this up, I want you to imagine with me what it was like for Noah to come off of that ark after the flood. To have a world that greeted him that was radically different from the world that he left behind. That old world was gone. That well-oiled machine that God created that we read about in the very beginning. That, that, that incredible mechanism by which God uh, sustained his creation. The vapor canopy above. You had the waters above, the waters below, the firmament that separated them. Everything that, that he instilled that made that planet habitable and constantly green, Uh, all of that which kept the forces of nature in check, it was gone, never to be seen again. What happened to it? You and I know what happened to it. We studied it last week. We looked at the details that unfolded before us in the scripture. We we saw how the uh, fountains of the deep broke open, and there was a uh, a gush of water from beneath that covered the entire face of the earth. We saw how, how that vapor canopy that God had created was punctured, and the windows of heaven now open uh, sent torrents of rain down, destroying every living thing. We saw how that happened in vivid detail. Noah didn't see that. Noah only saw the effects of all that. He was encased in safety inside that ark when God shut him in. He protected Noah, not just from the violence of the flood, but from the very sight of the flood. And so the world that he said goodbye to and the world that greeted him when that door was open, very, very different. I'm not just talking about the water that must have remained. I'm talking about later, long after all of that water had receded. This was a very different world. Noah now saw things that he'd never seen before. He saw cloud formations. That was new. He felt the chill of the wind for the first time. He, he felt the heat of the sun, which was not a threat in the old world. Now he would blister, he would burn if he stood unprotected in its rays for very long. Planet Earth was now less habitable 
for man. It was, it was more uh, accommodating for the likes of lizards in aquatic life because of all the water that now covered the surface of the planet. Uh, the flood produced things that, that were new, that had never existed before. There would now become polar regions. There eventually would be desert scapes. Uh, there would be seasonal changes. Noah would eventually experience rain firsthand, potentially snow. Man's relationship to the earth had radically changed. But that's not all. Man's relationship to God was also changing. Enter this covenant that we're going to talk about right here. The Noahic covenant. What is it? It's a series of statements that God is going to make in our text today. Uh, There are going to be components of this covenant that will involve responsibilities that man would have toward nature. That God would have toward nature. Responsibilities of man toward God. Of God toward man. Of man toward his fellow man. And these remain and endure today. And that's what makes this important to talk about. Because this has been in place all throughout history. Now, I love history. Uh, I got to tell you, though, most of the history classes that I took growing up, they bored me to tears. And the reason is because when you simply read about world history or you sit through a lecture on world history, uh, you don't know where to put the emphasis Because when history is taught from a humanistic perspective, they don't tell you what to emphasize. They just give you the static information. Uh, But if you look at history from God's perspective, if you see it through the redemptive lens, okay, you see the fall of man, you see uh, the reclaiming of man by God, Scripture unfolds all of that and it shows you where to put the emphases and it might ignore things that you think are important or that we think are important and it focuses on minutia it focuses on guys like Noah one man who stands on a mountaintop and God makes a promise to him it focuses on guys like uh, Abraham who stands on the plains of Ur and God makes a promise to him it focuses on guys like David who stands in Jerusalem and God makes a promise to him and we see the fulfillment of those promises and we see events like the destruction of a temple or the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. And this all relates to what we call, in your notes, the redemptive view of history. What is that? That is the story of the loss of mankind, which we saw in Genesis chapter 3, and his recovery eventually through Jesus Christ. And as we approach history through that lens, it begins to make sense to us. So what I want us to do is I want us to reread a verse that we closed with last week. Look with me at Genesis 8, verse 20. In the aftermath of that flood, Noah comes out, and it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. He sacrifices to God. And then God makes a covenant with him. And I'm going to show you, as we study this, five aspects of this covenant. And they're all going to be one word, okay? And the first aspect of this covenant that God makes with Noah, that still is something that you and I benefit from today, the first aspect in your notes is promise. There's a promise here. Uh, Now that the earth is radically different, that canopy is gone, 
the way that God is going to sustain his earth is going to be very different. No longer is it going to be cyclical. No longer are you going to have water coming from beneath and condense and it sustains everything. The new world will feature rain. I want you to think about that for just a minute. What psychological effect is that going to have on people now? Huh? That first drop of rain? Is that going to send people into a tizzy? Noah's going to feel a raindrop? What's he going to be thinking? Uh-oh. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Is he mad again? Honey, get back on the boat! Right? No. Look at verse 21. God's going to make a promise. And this is a necessary promise. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil. From his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is a promise never to destroy the earth again in this way. And we're going to just peek ahead into chapter 9 because it's relevant. There's a sign of this particular promise in uh, verse 12 of chapter 9, God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth when I bring clouds. And the bow was seen in the clouds. I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters will never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And you probably know about this. Maybe Sunday school showed you. That's when you see a rainbow, your parents probably pointed it out. That means God's never going to destroy the earth by flood. That's God's sign. Now the rainbow's been a little hijacked in our day, hasn't it? That's right. But it does not belong to any movement or culture on the earth. It is God's rainbow. It's his sign. And it's a sign of mercy. Now, why is this promise important? Uh, Notice God doesn't say in verse 21, well, I'm not going to destroy the earth anymore. They've learned their lesson. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Neither does he say, I won't do this anymore because I've solved the problem of sin in the heart of man. I've taken out all the bad apples. We just got this one family. They're good people. We're never going to have this problem on planet Earth again. Well, obviously that's not true. We got it rampant right now. There's wickedness amok in our world. Even if you go back to what we taught a few weeks back about the reason for the flood that you had in those days, the, the corruption of mankind on the earth and you had the Nephilim that, that were uh, uh, vast in number and God had to eradicate them to preserve the coming of a redeemer. Even if you say, well, he took out all the Nephilim, what do we know from our study in Genesis 6 that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward? Are we going to have giants on the earth post-flood? We are. We know the name Goliath. We know the name Anak and Og and, and such. And so we know that's not what's motivating this promise, I want you to understand what he says here. It involves the inevitability of human sin. There's a a divine comfort in this promise. What does he say? I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is a comfort from God despite the foregone conclusion 
of the sin of mankind. If you don't have this promise, there's always going to be the possibility that God's going to get huffy and wipe us all out except for one person and start all over. And we would live in this perpetual paranoia. Every time it got cloudy, you'd think, well, this, this is it. Especially if you live in California. A few years back, we had the pandemic. We had race riots in every major city. And we had fires up in the hills. And the whole sky would be yellow because of smoke and ash and soot. You know? And if you lived in that kind of a, under that kind of a threat that God might just snuff us all out, that would not be sustainable. And so God's, God's making a promise in spite of man's sinfulness. I'm not going to do this. And in saying that, he makes a psychological evaluation of man. Man is wicked from the womb. All right? Pretty simple. There's a lot of theories on the nature of man. And nobody agrees. If you take a psychology course, uh, they won't teach you anything definitive about why man is the way man is. You're kind of left to your own thoughts on the matter. Nobody can say definitively uh, it's metaphysical. Well, God is unequivocal about this. Okay? Man is the way man is, not because of how he's raised. It's not your parents' fault. It's not the fault of public education, although they don't help. Why is man the way he is? It's because he's bad to the bone. George Thorogood wrote a song about it. All right? Bad, right? We, we are stinkers innately. It's natural. And if you have children, you understand that. You're like, that's true. That's right. Single people don't get that. They're like, I don't know. Yeah, wait till your kids start hitting each other over the head with toy dump trucks. You will understand and embrace the innate sinfulness of man. How can we change? There's one way. There's one way. You can't modify the sin nature. You can't rehabilitate the sin nature. Education doesn't do it. Jail time doesn't do it. Shock therapy doesn't do it. None of that cures the sin nature. You could take a pig, you can give a pig a bath, you could spritz him with cologne, you could tie a big bow around his neck, you can name him Trevor, you could take him out to a fancy dinner, you could bring him home, you could plop him on the sofa next to you and watch Downton Abbey. And what's he going to do? The first chance he gets, he's going to go outside, find some mud, and roll around in it. Why? Because that's what pigs do. Man does what man does because he's man. How do, you, how do you keep a pig from doing what a pig does? You make him into pork chops. That's it. All right? How do you stop man from doing what man does? He's got to die. He's got he's to be placed on a cross and be crucified with Christ. He's got to be raised with Christ. God's spirit has to be placed within him. God's word has to be illuminated to him. God's people surround him to comfort him, to encourage him, to sharpen him. That's how man changes. But in the meantime, you've got this promise. I will never again destroy the earth despite the sin of man. It's a promise. And then secondly, second aspect of this covenant is the word protection. Protection. We're now in verse uh, one of chapter nine. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they are delivered. What's this mean? This means that there will now be a natural terror between the wild kingdom 
and humanity. How come? You'll notice this is a little repetitive from what we read in chapter 1. If you recall, in verse 28 of Genesis 1, it said, And God said to Adam and Eve, He said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Sounds very similar to what we just read. The difference is fear and dread between wildlife and man. They both say rule the earth. They both say subdue it. Now in chapter 9, everything is given into your hand. Uh, but there's, there's this dread among the animals. Well, that wasn't there in the beginning. wasn't there with Adam. Uh, it may not have even been there up through the flood. That's a possibility. Somebody asked me recently if I believe that there were dinosaurs on the ark. I said, of course. They said, really? I said, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have every reason to believe scripturally that dinosaurs existed alongside man. The world will look at you like you're smoking beer if you say that out loud. But Job describes some creatures, behemoth, leviathan. If you read their description, they, they, they look very similar to dinosaurs. Massive creatures. And they very clearly exist at the same time as mankind. Job is the oldest book in your Bible. All right, so were there dinosaurs on the earth? I said, yes. She said, even a T-Rex? I said, why not? She said, well, how would, how would they keep it from eating everything on the ark? I said, well, and this was just off the top of my head. I said, how did Daniel not get eaten in the lion's den? You know, the hand of God could have been upon them in sort of a divine tranquilizer kind of way. That's one possibility. But the other possibility is that there was a there was a harmony between wildlife and man up through the flood. Uh, the fall uh, certainly may have brought about a, a nature in animals to be red of tooth and claw, but it's not uh, necessary. Uh, this will happen, carnivorous activity on the part of animals, certainly after the flood, possibly before the flood. The inference here seems to be that there is a distinction between the relationship of men and animals pre-flood and post-flood. There seems to have been at one point a level of trust there. Now there will not be according to this covenant. There will be a fear. There will be a dread on the part of wildlife. Obviously that wasn't there when Adam named all the animals. He couldn't have named them all if he was afraid he was going to get eaten. And so that was definitely there. Was it there with Noah? Possibly. So if so, why the change now? Well, post-flood, you got a massive amount of animals coming off of that ark. How many people? Eight. So if the animals are a threat to man in this new world where although they were created vegetarian, we've talked about that, now the world is not hospitable in that regard. The, the, the vegetation that's available is not there in the number like it was. So how are they to be sustained? If animals become predatory, you've only got eight people on planet Earth. Very quickly, there could be zero. And so God instills something that, uh, that keeps the savagery of animals at bay so it didn't turn into Planet of the Apes or Jurassic Park right off of the bat. And so there's a natural fear between man and animal. And that fear remains today. That's why you don't have grizzly bears and mountain lions overrunning cities. Okay? So there's a protection that God instills in the early days of man seeking to repopulate the earth right here. The next uh, aspect of this covenant that I want you to jot down in your notes is the word provision. 
provision. You got a promise, you got protection, and now you've got provision. Verse 3 says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Every moving thing that lives shall be food. As I gave you the green plants, I give you now everything. You know what this means? This means we can eat meat. Best covenant ever! At least so far, all right? There's one coming that's better. But this is pretty good. Why the change? Did you know that? I've reminded you, you know, Noah, uh, prior to the flood, man was not permitted to eat meat. Doesn't mean he didn't eat meat, just means God didn't allow it. Now he allows it. He allows it. How come? As I've said, the vegetation is now limited post-flood. The climate is different. Seasonal change. It's not going to sustain man as a vegetarian. Meat's going to be necessary. It's a very pivotal time. Man's got to replenish the earth. Okay? So God permits uh, man to be carnivorous. Now, is it wrong to be a vegetarian? No, not at all, unless, unless it's motivated, your vegetarianism, by the view that it's wrong to take animal life. If your vegetarianism is rooted in some sort of activism or, or animal rights ideology, I would say that's a problem because there's no biblical basis for that. If some philosophical view of the dignity of animal life is driving your desire to just eat green stuff, then that comes out of a pantheistic view of nature, okay? And that's not good. So if, if eating cow and chicken and pig are not your thing, that's fine and probably very, very healthy for you. Uh, but it's not a philosophy that you pull out of Scripture, just so you know. It's not. There are health benefits for it. I got no problem with it. I say blessings to you if that's, if that's what you do. But you can't say I'm doing this because Scripture commands it, because God gives permission to eat meat right here, okay? So we're in a dispensation where I get to eat a dead cow, and I've eaten thousands, okay? So if you rebuke me for that on the grounds of dignity... That is to say that there is no distinction between me and that cow, all right? But I'm here to tell you, I am created in the image of God. That cow is not. I am. You are, which is why I don't eat you. <laughs> and you don't get to eat me, all right? So you want to be vegetarian, I say, God bless you, you know, have a zucchini on me, all right? Just don't be a functioning Hindu, that's all, that's all, all right? Uh, we have total freedom in God right here. It says, any moving thing that lives. Any moving thing. That means aardvark is on the menu. You want to eat aardvark? That's, your, that's weird, but go for it. All right? You can eat a platypus if you want. Uh, I won't be doing that, but whatever. In some cultures, very strange things that people consume. You know, If you've gone abroad on a mission trip or something like that, you've had the opportunity to sample some local cuisine. Uh, there's an old saying with uh, missions work. Uh, you know, when you travel abroad, uh, you know, the, the saying is, where they lead me, I will follow. What they feed me, I will swallow. <laughs> and I've swallowed some stuff that seemed a little nasty at the time. But it's just called, to each his own. You know, I went to Indonesia several years ago. And uh, I had a friend from Indonesia named, named Twin. Uh, he's, he's, he's a good friend. He was taking me out to eat every meal. He would take me to a new restaurant. He knew I couldn't read the menu, so he would just order for me. And Twin was playing a joke on me. His mission was to break me, you know. 
And so I would get served up the craziest. I ate so many fish with faces on it, I can't even count them, you know. I consumed pigeon brain. I had oxtail, which really wasn't that bad. And I had, I, I had fish lip soup. I'm not kidding. And I knew what he was trying to do. And so I was, I was, I'm pretty adventurous, culinarily speaking. And so I was eating this stuff. I was throwing in sound effects. I was like, mmm, mmm, man, that's good, you know. And finally, about day four, my stomach's doing somersaults. And, I, you know, it's, it's letting me know it. And I'm like, okay, all right, all right, all right. Twin, you win. You win. Can we, can we just take it easy for lunch? Can we go somewhere simple? I just want just some, you know, barbecue chicken, something like that. He's like, okay. So he takes me to a dim sum bar. And we go in there. You know what dim sum is? They, they give you the little sample-sized portions in these little cups. And I spy something that looks like barbecue chicken. I go, is that chicken? He goes, yes. I go, okay. So I get it, take it back to the table, put it on my plate. I'm moving around with my fork, and it looks like this. I say, twin, is this a foot? Am I looking at a foot? Is that a foot? He goes, yes. I said, Twin. I told you I just wanted chicken. He goes, it is chicken. So, you know, I didn't become a vegetarian, however, despite all of that. I'm just not called to that. But we have freedom right here. And then the fourth aspect of this covenant, it's the word prohibition. Prohibition. God says, eat all the animals you want. There's one thing you cannot consume. One thing you cannot consume. Look at verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. It's blood. Every part of the animal is free to consume. According to God, he says, just don't consume the blood. You say, can I not have a rare steak? Don't go crazy here. That's not what this is talking about. What does he mean right here? One possibility, one possible interpretation is that to consume uncooked blood, uncooked meat and that has, is filled with blood, that there could be some sort of bacteria in that that is harmful so to consume it would be detrimental to humanity, make us sick. So the idea is this prohibition is to protect us. That would not be uh, odd for God. It wouldn't be the first time he gave a prohibition to protect us. Remember in the garden, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat of it, you'll die. Later under Moses, you're going to have elements of the law that are diet-based, that are hygienic, all to preserve our health, keep us cleanly. Is that what this is? Could be. I think it's at best a side benefit. There are pagan cultures today that literally drink the blood of animals, which is definitely not a healthy thing to do. But there may have been a custom in that day that was like that, that was born out of a culture disobedient to God. But I would say that the significance of the blood here has to do with an institution that was prevalent in man's existence at the time that was ordained of God. And I believe that in this, this little prohibition, God is preserving for Noah and generations to follow the institution of sacrifice. Sacrifice. Noah's just performed a sacrifice on the altar. And so God makes this covenant in the aftermath of that. And that institution of sacrifice, who started that? God did. Back in Eden, right after the fall of man. Drop that fig leaf, Adam. Put this animal skin on. God just shed the blood of a couple of animals, made a covering for sin. It becomes an institution. Man, thenceforward, would participate in sacrifice. We read of Abel. He offers God the first of his flock 
God accepts that sacrifice. Cain offers God the best of his crop. Some nice shiny rutabaga. God says, unacceptable. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. We're going to meet Abraham later. Will he sacrifice? Absolutely. He'll even offer up his son to God. We're going to meet Moses. Moses is going to codify uh, sacrifice, put it into the system of the law. And then we'll meet the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so God is preserving this concept of sacrifice. Do we benefit from that? We do. It's just we don't have to be the one shedding the blood anymore because the Lamb of God shed his blood for you and I. But we see it pictured in this covenant. You will not treat blood in a trivial manner. I have a purpose set aside for it. And we remember that every time we partake in communion. Take this cup. Remember me. Don't forget my sacrifice. Don't trivialize the blood. And then the fifth aspect of this covenant, it's the word powers. Powers. And by powers, I mean that here is given an authorization. God will now institute human government. Human government. Maybe you thought human government was something we created. Au contraire. It is not a sociological phenomenon. This, in this text right here, we see the origin point of human government. Verse 5, he says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. A reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. What is a reckoning? That means there's to be an accountability. If you take something you ought not take, there will be a standard to which you are held accountable and there will be consequences for breaking that standard. God is saying that if anyone kills someone else, be they man or beast, God demands that, that their life be taken according to this passage. He's going to require their life of them. If they take life, their life must be taken. And by what instrument will he take their life? Is God going to supernaturally snuff them out on the spot? Look at verse 6. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And so this says that God will use human beings to hold other human beings accountable. That's what this says. And in the event of taking innocent life, that perpetrator's life will be taken by authorized individuals. For what reason? He explains it as he goes on. He says, for God made man in his image, his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So what are we talking about? What concept is this? This is capital punishment. This is capital punishment. Whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. Not vigilanteism, not mob rule with a rope and a tree, all right? This is orderly. This is an authoritative, orderly thing. Question, why is God ordaining this? Well, in Genesis 4, you recall, we had a dilemma. Cain killed his brother, right? How did God handle that? He told Cain, Genesis 4.10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And that communicates something. That communicates there's a natural desire for recompense, for justice. There's a dignity in human life. 
We're created in the image of God. You take that life, there are consequences. Justice must match the crime, according to Scripture. The demand for capital punishment was way back already in Genesis chapter 4. And what we saw in Genesis 4 was not an execution, but that God made Cain an example. We've already studied this. Cain was banished from the Lord's presence. Uh, He could no longer approach God. He could no longer uh, offer sacrifice. He didn't even want to. He was hardened against it. You know, and we saw that God said, uh, no one else is going to take your life of their own apart from my authority. If anybody kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. That's that's a command against vigilantism right there. God even put a mark on Cain so people would know, don't touch him. You're not authorized. So they knew to leave him alone. And so with that first murder, God said, I'm going to show you mercy, but you will, you will be my inaugural example as to uh, the wrong nature of taking innocent life. All right? The fact that God left Cain alive was not an out for capital punishment. He's using him as an example so that God, so that God could communicate to the entire world that there are severe consequences for taking human life. I will banish from my presence the one who sheds innocent blood. Cain had hardened himself against God. God gave Cain the desire of his heart and he banished him. But in the long run, was that his intent for that to work with mankind? Did it work? No, Cain had a whole line of descendants. We read about his descendant Lamech. Lamech bragged about killing a man. And so Lamech responded to God's justice in contempt. Was he aware of God's judgment? Yes. Was he aware of God's word? Yes. What was his response to God, Lamech? It was a big middle finger. And so here, we're in a different world. And just prior to this moment, in Genesis chapter 6, what do we have? You had the world filled with violence. You had the corruption of mankind. You had man killing wantonly, shedding blood for his own purposes. He had no concern for human life. There was no value for human life. The whole earth is filled with violence. The only concern man has regarding life is his own life. His only care is his own flesh, his own preservation. Paul recognizes that that innate uh, reality in man, Ephesians 5.29, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. That's why you'll see savage killers on death row and as they go to the chair or the lethal injection or whatever it is, they, they weep like babies because they value their own life. Even Satan understands that. In Job 2.4, he says to the Lord, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his own life. And God understands that about the wicked heart of man. And so what's he doing now? If you have another Cain rise up and start taking lives in this new world, what do you do? Do you banish him? No. No, we did that. Uh, do you let anarchy rule? You let people uh, have mob justice? No, no. What does God do? He formally gives this institution of man governing man. There must be human authority. Man will now govern himself. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And that is not sporadic vengeance, it's orderly. Does the Bible teach capital punishment? I believe it does. I believe it does. Uh, we see it here. Before Moses. This is not even the old law. This is pre-law. This predates the Mosaic law. Later, it's going to be codified under Moses for Israel. 
But we even read Paul in the New Testament under a new covenant. Paul writes in Romans 13, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. The government is, is the servant of God, according to Paul. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we saw the reason for capital punishment in Genesis 4. The institution of it is in this chapter, Genesis chapter 9. And I do believe in capital punishment. I really do. And the reason I believe it is not simply that Scripture mentions it, but it's the reason Scripture mentions it. Is capital punishment this wonderful, delightful thing? No. It's terrible. It's, it's unpleasant. But it beats Genesis 6. Genesis 9 trumps Genesis 6. Okay? That's just reality. And governance, even to the point of taking human life for the right reason, is a harsh reality. It's a necessity in a fallen world. It is better that the righteous slay the wicked than the wicked slay the righteous. That's the new world, post-flood. And some Christians do oppose capital punishment. I'm aware of this. I've talked at length with them, okay? Uh, they say I oppose it because they say the Bible says you shall not murder. Yes, it does say that. It, it doesn't say you shall not kill. In the original language, it's you shall not murder, all right? But understand something. Nowhere, nowhere is capital punishment seen in Scripture as murder. It's not seen as murder. It's a providential act of judgment that God grants to human authorities. Now, can it be misapplied? Do innocent people have to go to the chair at time or whatever the means is? It's changed in different states over the years. Are innocent people executed? They have been. They absolutely have been. Does that make the institution wrong? No. No, it doesn't, make, it doesn't make the institution wrong. It doesn't make government wrong. What's the problem? Is it the government? It's the governors. So you have flawed individuals working over a system. That does not mean that the system is not of God. It just means that man in general is fallen. So a system can be authorized by God, and those running that system can be flawed. Does not invalidate the system, because God instituted the system. So the way to view this is as an extremely unpleasant reality in a fallen world, but it is a necessity, because Genesis 9 is preferable to Genesis 6, all right? And so as we wrap this up, I just want to talk about government and what Scripture makes clear about it, okay? So in your notes, the Bible is clear about the following things regarding human government. First of all, it's divinely ordained. It's divinely ordained. You will never find one righteous character in Scripture, Old or New Testament, that actively, under the authority of God, rebels against the government as a whole. Okay? Stay with me here. You see people existing in pagan governments. Babylon, Persia, Egypt, Rome. Now, these righteous people will walk in some passive resistance. You're going to see some of that. 
If the government is asking them to forsake God, they do not comply. If the government is asking them to worship a pagan god or uh, their king, for example, to give to them what is only due God, they will not comply. They'd resist. They'd face the music. Okay? But there's no example of an act of rebellion or overthrow of said government. You with me? You don't see it. You don't see it. Here's Paul, New Testament. He's, he's referring to the pagan government of Rome. Rome worshipped worshiped a whole pantheon of deities that they ripped off from Greece. So here's what he says. Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no such authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All right? Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are servants of God. God called Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Uh, why does Paul take this, this stance right here? Because he understands Genesis. He understands the Noahic covenant. He takes it at face value. Government is instituted by God. Even if we've messed it up, it's still God's institution. Look at what Pilate said to Jesus in John 19. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What did Jesus say? He said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And so the authority that government has is not on the basis of their own power. It's given to them by God, you see. And so... As Christians, we really have a more accurate understanding of government than than even those in government have. Paul's words are written to people who live in Rome. Peter is going to write from Rome, okay, from the city of Rome, which is a pagan government. And by the way, what do we know about Peter? Peter's the guy who pulled a sword and tried to decapitate a government official. And so this is a man who relearned the principles of government. And he wrote in 1 Peter 2.13, uh, rather, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. You know when it's hardest to remember all of this? Tax time. <laughs> right? Man alive. Now, by the way, none of what I'm saying means that you and I have to comply with everything the government tells us to do. Because in America, we live in a constitutional representative republic. That is the particular model of government that we enjoy. And there are things within a constitutional representative republic that the government will seek to enforce that actually fly in the face of the Constitution and our laws. And so when that happens, it is right, it is appropriate for us as citizens and as Christians to challenge the government in civil ways, in accordance with our laws, all right, to challenge them in what they are attempting and to do it in a a manner that brings glory to God. But we are able to do that under this present system of government for right now. That's America. Not everybody around the world enjoys that kind of a a governmental model, however. And so 
You might be in a country where the government has really gone south and they start to be more iron-fisted and the only thing believers can do in that environment is serve God unequivocally, unashamedly, and resist whenever human authorities tell you to, re- to, to turn your back on your God. But you do so like Daniel. You do so like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You do so like the apostles and you stay willing to face the consequences whatever they may be. But the first thing about government is that it's divinely ordained. Now, the second thing I want to show you is something that they are responsible for, according to God. What is the number one thing, according to the Bible, that a government is responsible for? Is it to provide public education? Is it to provide low-income housing? Is it to fix the roads? Some of that's all well and good, but no. What did Peter say? He said, punish the evildoers. Paul said, be a terror to the evildoers. Genesis says, kill evildoers, those who shed blood. So what is it? In your notes, they are designed to restrain evil. They are an agent of God to restrain evil, whether they acknowledge that, see it that way, or not. They are to avenge innocent blood. They preserve the dignity of the image of God, the imago Dei. They, they may not understand that's what they're there for, but that's what they're there for. Enforce the law for the, for the public good. There are laws. They should enforce laws that protect the public. When I first came to North Carolina a year ago, by the way, this is my year anniversary today that I've been here. Yeah. I made it a year, you know. When I came here a year ago, there were two things that caused me to be very aware of how fast I was driving. One is the frequent sight of a police car. I don't remember that many back where I came from, okay? The other is the occasional deer that would jump out in front of me. Now, both of of those bad boys will cost you money if you're not careful, all right? Uh, But this is, according to Scripture, the primary purpose of government is to be a judgment to the lawless. Notice when it's instituted, it's instituted under the context of he who sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. And so it's, it's, it's defined under that. And then in your notes, it's designed to recognize God. It's designed to recognize God. There are many things that we could do a whole study on our nation's laws and the origin of all that, where it's all derived from, natural law, uh, what God has instilled that is apparent in nature, uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic present in the Scripture, a lot of that informed and defined uh, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, our Declaration of Independence, our laws that are on the books, okay? So a nation is better off acknowledging God and God's laws. If, an, if a government does not recognize God, what do we call that? We call that a tyranny, a tyranny. Uh, why, why shall man who sheds blood, why shall his blood be shed by man? He said the reason is for God made man in his image, which takes us back to Genesis 1. Government needs to be rooted in principles of truth. It's got to respond to a higher authority, okay? Uh, if you take God out of government, it's tyranny. If you think back on ancient history, the result of any government that did that is brutality and bloodshed and, and uh, butchery. All of those pagan kingdoms that we read about in Scripture, it defines all of them in that way. As we grew more modern, the French Revolution, they traded the knowledge of God for reason. And it was a bloodbath. Nazi Germany, they rejected all biblical ideals. 
It was a bloodbath. Russia, after the October Revolution, they rejected the Tsarist regime. They embraced communism, atheism. Marx said religion is the opiate of the masses. What'd they get? We still don't know how many people Stalin had killed. Some say 20 million. Who governs the governors if God is rejected? I look at the U.S. today. Are we in trouble? We're in trouble. We're in trouble. Why? Because we've rejected this covenant. We've rejected the word of God. We've rejected uh, what God says about the inception of government and why it's created. And it's my belief that we have a very, very strong contingency of elected officials that have rejected God, that have embraced Marxism. I believe it wholeheartedly. They are not motivated in any sense that acknowledges a higher authority. They think they're the highest authority. They don't even think the Constitution trumps them. Many of them. Okay? And there's very little in the way of checks and balances. And by the way, the media plays along just perfectly. That's our world. That's our world. So what do we do? We speak out. We stand up. We operate as agents for change in whatever capacity we can while honoring our authorities. And if we're ever asked to forsake our higher authority, we don't. We don't. Right now, churches and Christian organizations enjoy a tax-exempt status if they're nonprofit. Uh, we're not guaranteed of that forever. And the day may come where the government comes to places like this and they say, you can't say that. You can't teach that. You can't call sin, sin. If you do, we will revoke your tax-exempt status. And as I've said to you before, if that day ever comes, it will not be a difficult decision for the Lamb's Chapel. It will not. Because we don't put our hope in government, and that's your next point as we close, that government is never designed to be our hope. I don't care what they do. I, this church doesn't exist because of them. Psalm 146.3, Put not your trust in princes and son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Where is our salvation? It's in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And so we know that our world, all of the debauchery, all of the violence, all of the social ills, none of that is going to be overcome by policy. There's no perfect government except the one that's coming. And it is coming. It is coming. And we are subjects of that kingdom. And we function as such in this world, but we do so in a, matter, in a manner that is respectful, that is honoring to Christ, and that is honoring to those whom Christ has placed in authority. Because that's what his covenant reads in Genesis chapter 9. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon everybody here as we, we who are citizens of a far country operate here now as sojourners in this one. And Lord Jesus, may we, may we be good citizens here for a time, for the short season that we're here. Not to bring glory to the government, the human government that is over us, God, but to bring glory to you because you have ordained them for now. And we want to reflect that coming kingdom that is ruled by a perfect king who lives in our hearts as we speak, now and forever. 
And we ask your blessing upon everybody here today. May they go out and serve you and honor you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.